title of today's message is called Drawing Near. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. If you didn't bring your Bibles with you, you don't have a device, it's um, on the back of your bulletin also, um, what we're going to be talking about. But I'm going to start today by kind of taking us back in time a little bit. We're going to go back in time about 3,300 years to about 1,300 B.C., where the largest worship gathering ever up until that time is about to take place. Six million people have gathered to worship Yahweh God. They've gone out into the desert and are now surrounding a mountain, which would be today the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt on the southern portion. They're straining to hear the voice of their leader as he tells them how they should prepare for their first church service. He tells them, wash your clothes, put on your best robes. You are going to meet God and you want to look your best to meet God. He tells them, abstain from intimacy. It sounds like an unusual thing to ask of them, but he's saying that you need to be so focused on worship to God that we want you to abstain from intimacy. And then he tells them, don't get too close to this mountain because the very presence and awesomeness of God is going to come down on this mountain. And the people did as Moses commanded. They washed their clothes. They put on their finest robes. Husband and wife slept in separate beds. And they stayed within the camp as ordered. And as they all gathered for church, suddenly the mountain burned with fire. Loud noises proclaimed the greatness of God that they came to worship. And the sight was so incredible that Moses, the man of God himself, said, I am trembling with fear. Oh, that we would have that kind of church service today, amen? Wouldn't that be an incredible sight to see the mountain completely filled with fire and the angelic choir praising God as he descends? And Israel with all these incredible experiences that you read about in the Bible, with all the favor that they had with God and, and how they knew him. We know him, our Father, as they never do. You see, they only knew God as judge, as this terrible figure that was, was over there in the universe somewhere. They knew him as, as almighty. They knew him as holy. But they never really knew, and they really never understood him as Father. They knew what it was to fear God, but they never really understood what it was to love God. And that is because God's love, his mercy, and his grace are the most frequent targets of the enemy in our minds. The enemy wants God portrayed in our minds as this unloving, this distant, this vengeful, somewhat malevolent dictator out there that only wants to make our lives miserable. But that is not the God we serve. That is the good gospel news, that that is not the God we serve. And today we're going to explore this topic, and we're going to tie it in to the importance of the frequency of coming together with your church family to worship. And we're going to start by reading in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more so as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for its guidance. We thank you, Lord, that it still speaks to us thousands of years later just as freshly as it did to its original audience. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you take the power of your word this morning. Use it to change our hearts, use it to change our minds, and use it to mold us into a vessel of honor that you have called us to be in this world. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So the scripture tells us here that we are to draw near to God. But what does that mean? How does, how does that work? How do we draw near to God and why is it so important that we do it as part of a community instead of just being a bunch of lone rangers out there? And today we're going to start by looking at the way the Old Testament believer worshipped because that's what they are talking about here in Hebrews. And then we're going to look at the new way that Christ brought. So let's look at this Old Testament system. You see, in the Old Testament, people would gather several times a year for various ceremonies and celebrations that served them to remind them of God's goodness and faithfulness to them and their ancestors. And many of these were very festive occasions. These were big parties, big fellowship meals, time to get together and celebrate what God did in their lives. It was like New Year's Eve, or their, what they called Rosh Hashanah. This was their New Year's Eve, a time to get together, to party, to have fun, and fellowship one another and worship God in the process. But there were also very solemn occasions on the Hebrews' religious calendar. And one of these was called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. This was a day of fasting and prayer, repentance and mourning over the sins of the individual, their family, and even the nation. And this was serious business. And God said it was very serious business. He went so far to say, if you do not celebrate or observe the Day of Atonement, you will be cut off from your church and you will be exiled from the nation. So God took this very seriously that they would participate in this, in this um, observance. And on that day, the high priest would take two very special animals. Both of them were bred from the finest of the herds that were in the entire nation. These were animals without spot or blemish. These were animals that you would want to keep and breed with other animals to continue their line. But they were set aside specifically for the worship of God. One of these animals, a high priest would go and he would lay his hands upon. And he would pray a prayer that would symbolically transfer the sin of the entire community upon this animal. This animal was then taken to the edge of the camp and driven away. It was called the scapegoat. It wasn't necessarily a goat, but it could be a, a, a cow or, or a steer or something. And he would, he would symbolically transfer all of the sin of the nation to them, and they would drive that animal away. That animal could no longer be touched, could no longer be used for food, could no longer be bred. It was driven out into the wilderness and away from the, from the congregation of people. The other animal was slaughtered. 
And its blood was carried through the temple to the most holy place, where something very interesting happened there. You see, in the, most, in the tabernacle or in the temple, there were various divisions within there. You are sitting in what would be called right now the holy place of the temple, except that this was not a place that people would sit in. This was a place that the priests would go in and work and, and make sure that the table of showbread would be sitting over here, the table of incense would be sitting over here, and then you would have an altar of incense, um, or the candlestick, excuse me, would be over here, and the altar of incense would be right here, um, symb symbolically um, putting out incense that um, symbolizes the people's prayer to God. And then the priest would make sure that the table always had fresh bread, the candlestick was going, and the altar was going, but that's all they did in this room. Then where I'm standing would be the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant stood. This is where the mercy seat on top of the Ark um, stood, where the blood would be applied as a um, you know, symbolically representing the death of the people and their repentance. And the blood would be applied and God would forgive their sins at this point. In between the holy place and the most holy place was a curtain. And this wasn't just your living room curtain. This isn't like the, the valances we have up here on the windows. This was a curtain that was four inches thick, according to the rabbinical traditions. About as thick as the uh, length of your hand here. And not only was this curtain thick, it was fastened on all four sides. And it was, one, it was sewn together as one piece. And so it was fastened up here, fastened down here, and fastened on the floor. There was literally no possible human way to get through this. And it is believed that God, when he saw the priest coming, would allow that priest to literally walk straight through that, that solid curtain. That he would pass through the curtain so that he could, um, so that he could minister and do his job as high priest. Now this curtain was also known as the veil in some Bible translations, and it represented sin that separated humanity from the holy God. The explanation that he supernaturally passed through the wall is important. And we'll see that here in just a moment. I want you to look at the symbolism of what is happening here. That the priest carrying the blood makes that separating barrier of sin almost dissolve. And then it was placed on something for mercy, for something that covered the law. And that symbolism points us back to our verse this morning. It said, therefore, and this is where this verse is going to make a little more sense. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the holiest of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure waters. You see, Jesus fulfilled all of that for us that was seen in the Old Testament. Jesus became what we pass through to get to God. That's why the song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
Sin had left that crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You see, his blood touches that sin, that separating wall, and he obliterates it before God. It touched the mercy seat and bought forgiveness now and forever for all those who believe and follow him. The law which once stood as condemnation for us was fulfilled and canceled so that we would know the kind of freedom that God wants us to live in. Jesus obliterated that wall and that veil separating humanity from God. Jesus is our new and living way. And that's what this church family comes together to celebrate every Sunday morning. That's what we come together to celebrate on Wednesday night. That is why we are told to celebrate in the Bible in community. We are the body of Christ. And if the leg of the body of Christ is missing on a Sunday morning, it's, the church service is going to hobble a little bit because we're not all here together worshiping God. The first part of this scripture, we dealt with the process that was needed for us to come together to worship. Let's look now at what the worship and lifestyle looks like and what, how it benefits God and us by look, looking at what it means to abide in his presence. In order to abide in God's presence, the scripture tells us to do a few things here that we read before. It says to hold fast. And the author of Hebrews is telling us exactly what to hold fast here. He said, hold fast to hope. And hope is illustrated by a story of two identical twins. They were alike in every way. Mother could never tell them apart until they started to talk. Because one was a hope-filled optimist who only saw the bright side of life. But the other one was this dark pessimist who saw the dark side of every situation. And their mother was concerned about it, so she went to the doctor and she said, how can I get this boy to see, even remotely see, the bright side of things? How, how, can, I, how can I help him? Because I don't want him to grow up and he's like Eeyore. It's like, everything's going to go wrong and there's always going to be a cloud in the sky. Kind of one of these people. And she didn't want him to go through life like this. And so she said, you know, doctor, help me. And the doctor suggested a plan. He said, on their next birthday... I want you to give the pessimist a shiny new bike, the best bike you can afford. I want you to give that to him. But give the optimist only a pile of manure and see what happens. See if you can get them to even out a little bit. Well, the mom thought it was a fairly extreme thing to do, and she went home and told the dad, and, and they got together and they said, well, you know, he's a doctor, so we're going to try it. So when the twins' birthday came, they gave the pessimist the most expensive, the top-of-the-range bike, a racing bike, the best one that any child would ever own. I remember getting one of these bikes when I was a kid. My, my dad actually went out and, and spent money and, and just got me one of these bikes. I was, you know, for about two days, the pride of the neighborhood before I broke it. But, so he gets them this bike. And when the kid saw the bike, the first word out of his mouth was, well, I'll probably crash and break my leg. I don't even know if I want to ride it. I'm just going to break it. I'm just going to scratch it. Meanwhile, the optimist looks at this carefully wrapped package that he has under the, under the, under the uh, tree, more or less, or, or, or in his room for his birthday. 
and he carefully opens it and he looks at it and opens it and he sees this big box full of manure. And he looked at it and he's puzzled and he's like, what is this? And, and then he freaks out. He's like, he starts jumping up and down and running over the house and he's just going, yay! And his parents are looking at him like, what are you freaking out about? It's a box of manure. And he said, you can't fool me. If there's this much manure in a box, I have a pony here somewhere. You see, life has a tendency to give us that box of manure once in a while, doesn't it? And even the most positive of us, the most optimistic of us can get overwhelmed and depressed and, and tired when the waves of trouble just smack you in the face one too many times. But that's what this family of faith is for. To take you in our arms, to help raise up your vision from this earth and lock your eyes on your Savior once again. And not only do we do this for you, but you are here to do it for us. You will never grow in hope if you spend your Sundays and Wednesdays apart from your church family. God has placed you here for such a time as this. And we desperately need the entire body present to function, to function correctly. And if we commit to the assembling of ourselves, we find the second attribute forming that helps us to hold fast to God. And that is that faithfulness to God will increase. And life is full of successes and failures. I don't know if you have ever failed in your life, but I have. And one of the areas that plagues the devout Christian the most is our faithfulness to God. And all of us have experienced these seasons. These seasons where we seem to be walking on the clouds with God. The sun is shining, the breeze is warm, the ground is dry, the smell of flowers and green grasses everywhere. Everything is going great in our lives. And then there are those other times where life just seems to pile the worries upon you. Those times when sin and distraction make God a distant memory. And our souls cry out for our Father, and He doesn't seem to answer. He seems very distant. An example of, of perseverance and faithfulness in, in, the, in the face of failure, Thomas Edison took years, almost 10 years, and over 1,000 tries to make the light bulb. I don't know if you knew this. I thought this was an incredible story. When a reporter asked him, how he was able to continue to work so diligently to invent something that had never been seen in the world before, had never even been thought of, and worked on it for a decade after failure after failure after failure. Thomas Edison replied, we never failed during those years. Never failed. We simply discovered 999 different ways how not to build a light bulb. And sometimes we need those kind of people around us. That is what your church family is supposed to be. People that can, again, lift our eyes off the circumstances, lift them back up to God and say, God still loves you. God still has a plan for you. And we will help get you through this. Let's lock arms and worship Jesus together, and we will get through this season in life, and you will be the more mature, the more stronger, and the more able to serve him throughout. if you just walk through this with us. Some of the practical ways that Scripture tells us to do this is to consider one another and to provoke one another. And it tells us some ways to provoke one another. It says to provoke one another in love. 
And the love they're talking about is this agape love that God shows to us, this God-centered love. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast. All these attributes of, God, of um, love that God shows us. And it can be shown through us as we yield to God and allow him to live through us. Another way we provoke each other is to serve. And a way I would illustrate this is about 17 years ago, I took a break from being a street paramedic to take a job in a medical call center. This call center was pretty, pretty good size. We had about 70 call takers on the phones at any given time, taking calls from all over the country about medical transport and medical uh, triage and different things like that. Right after I was hired, the director that hired me was fired. And a man named Dave Buckley took her place. And Dave was a student of leadership and management. Very, very, very good leadership uh, teacher. Even though he wasn't saved, just from a secular um, aspect, just very, very good at leadership and management. And one of the things that he taught us, and it was always drilling into us, whenever we would come with a complaint and say, we need to get rid of this call taker, or we need to discipline this call taker for something, or they're causing a disruption on the floor, he would simply ask us, are they busy enough? Do they believe that the work they are doing is meaningful? Are they busy doing work that means something to them? You see, people that are busy feeling useful and having fulfilling work won't have time to sit around and complain. Dave developed this thing called LCV or low call volume. As a supervisor, I would watch the computers and we would see a trend of calls not coming in and you just have those lull times and we're overstaffed. We would offer people the chance to go home on LCV and it wouldn't count against their attendance. So if you want to go home and you don't want to just sit here and be bored, you can go home. I mean, you're not going to get paid for it, but you know, if you want to take the rest of the day off, it's a sunny day, take the kids to the beach, whatever, you, know, you can go home on LCV. And the reason we did that was to keep the rest of the people busy so that their attitudes would remain positive and it would keep the morale of the call center up. You see, God understands this somewhat. And God kind of puts this idea in our hearts because God created you and I to work. What was the first thing he, what was the reason he created Adam and Eve? To tend the garden. He created us to work. There's something about meaningful work that really drives people to want to succeed. And there's something about wasted time that irritates people toward negativity. You want to ruin the, the, um, the attitude of a platoon of, of guys in the military? Have them go out and do busy work. I don't know if you've ever been in the military. And, and there's nothing to do, but you know your CEO, your CEO doesn't want the battalion commander seeing you lazing around doing nothing. So he decides to have you go out into the yard and turn over all the rocks so they all get the same tan. Or I want you to go dig holes out there and fill them back in. No particular reason, I just want you to look busy. And that kind of stuff can destroy the morale of people. But when we find ways to serve in the body of Christ to fulfill us, it's hard to contain that person's excitement. When I see God touch somebody in their heart with a mission, there is nothing that is going to stop that person. And that excitement is contagious for the rest of us. And that's why when we learn to serve, good works comes. You know, the pastor won't have to beg people on Sunday morning to come out and serve, saying, we have an outreach, I need people to come. It won't, it won't be a begging thing, it'll be people calling me in the middle of the night saying, hey, how can I serve you? 
That's a call I'll take at 3 a.m. How can I serve the church? That's, that's when things get excited, excitement in the church. Once we find our passion in life, we're going to want to do it because it's fun, it's fulfilling, and it yields results that are going to echo into eternity and it's going to change people's lives here on this earth. When we are a busy people doing the work that God has called us and equipped us to do, unity will then come. And most people want the presence of God in their church. Do you want the presence of God in this church? I do. Do you want the presence of God in your life, blessing you throughout your life? Then nothing attracts the presence of God like unity. Why is that? Because God's nature is unity. He exists as a three-part God. And these three parts, these three persons of the Godhead exist in perfect unity. And God wants that same kind of unity to exist here on earth with the people that are gathered together in his name that exists in heaven with the Trinity. Listen to what God thinks about unity in Psalm 133, where it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. And what's being described here is the anointing of God. When Aaron was made the high priest, they, would, they poured oil, sacred oil, upon him, and it would run down and just totally cover his body. And it's describing the anointing of God, that the power, presence, and favor of God coming down and resting upon that person. And that's what, we ha- what happens when we abide in his presence. When we hold fast to hope, when we hold fast to the faithfulness in God, when we consider one another and provoke one another to serve, to love, and to be unified. And all of this will provoke that response from heaven. Finally, let's look, look at the reward of frequently coming together as a church family, which answers the question, why do we need to assemble? Because Jesus is in our midst when we assemble. Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There are more than two or three people here this morning. Jesus is literally in this room with us right now. And if Jesus is here, he said, if you lift up the Son of Man, he will draw all men onto him. If we continue to be faithful to meet together, to worship him, he promises he will be here to meet the needs of those who need salvation. And not only meet those needs, but attract those outside of these walls that need to come and kneel before him and make him Lord and Savior of their life. Because there's spiritual power in numbers. There's a scriptural principle found in the Bible that says one can chase a thousand and two can put ten thousand to flight. Your active presence in worship and serving and in prayer when we meet together is like a carpet bombing to the forces of darkness in this community. A, force, a carpet bombing to the forces of darkness in your family or your friends. You are... Uh, you are participating in spiritual warfare, even if we're just getting together to worship and getting together to pray, or even getting together just simply to share a meal like we are after this service today. Never, ever, ever think 
that your Sunday, that your presence here on Sunday mornings means nothing. It is everything to help win this area for Jesus Christ. Because you're placed in this body for such a time as this. You are here as part of the divine plan for your life. You being here right now was planned out eons ago when the Trinity was sitting around saying, hey, let's create something. This, you being here right now, was part of that plan. You're here at this time to grow, to mature, and to help grow other. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that is why Jesus himself instituted the church. It's not just for you, it's for him. Let me illustrate this a little bit more. The gospel records Jesus talking to his disciples, and out of the, kind of out of the blue, Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? You know, I know what the crowds are thinking. I know what the crowds are saying. I know what the Pharisees are plotting. But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Sina, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petra in the Greek means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me personalize this for us a little bit. Bernie, because of your faith in Jesus, you are the rock that he is going to build this church on. Conrad, because of your faith in Jesus, you are going to be one of the rocks that he builds this church on. James, you are going to be a rock in this church. Lucille, Melanie, you are going to be rocks in this church. Keith, Jen, Jennifer, Stephen, your Tammy, even Tammy, is going to be one of the rocks that Jesus uses to build this church. Instead of saying, I can worship God anywhere and I don't need this church, ask yourself, what does God want you to do on that Sunday? What does God want you to do on Wednesday nights? Because it's clear from the scriptures, he wants you here. Not just for yourself, but so that you can be a blessing to others someday. We are the body of Christ. There is no I in body. There is no I in church. And there is no I in heaven. There's only Christ. And the I in Christ is in the middle of a group of letters, isn't it? And you are that group of letters. Jesus can only be perfected in us and his mission and can be fulfilled on this earth as we are worshiping and living our lives together. When I get done reading this, I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to absorb a truth that comes a little bit later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. You have not come to a mountain. There's a difference between you and the Old Testament, and that's going to be made apparent here. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned to death. 
The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Here is the charge. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused one who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from one who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what may be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's all stand.